1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Ling Shanjiang. Today, I'm delighted to have Professor Zhu Ping and Professor Xiao Hui Fei with us here on air. Professor Zhu and Professor Xiao, would you like to say hi to the listeners?
1: Hi. Hi, thank you for listening. So,
0: Professor Zhu Ping is Associate Professor of Chinese Literature at the University of Oklahoma. She is the author of Gender and Subjectivities in Early 20th Century Chinese Literature and Culture and the co-editor of Maoist Laughter. She's also the acting editor-in-chief of the well-known biannual literary journal, Chinese Literature Today, which will become Chinese Literature and Thought Today in 2022. Professor Xiao Hui is professor of Chinese Literature at the University of Kansas. She's the author of Family Revolution, Marital Strife in Contemporary Chinese Literature and Visual Culture, and Youth Economy, Crisis and Reinvention in 21st Century China, Morning Song in the Tiny Times. The volume we are discussing today, Feminisms with Chinese Characteristics, is co-edited by Professor Zhu and Professor Xiao. In this volume, they offer an examination of the ways in which Chinese feminist ideas have developed since the mid-1990s. By juxtaposing the plural feminisms with the Chinese characteristics, they both underline the importance of integrating Chinese culture, history, and tradition in the discussions of Chinese feminisms and stress the difference between the plethora of contemporary Chinese feminisms and the singular state feminism. There are 12 chapters in this interdisciplinary collection. It addresses the theme of feminisms with Chinese characteristics from different perspectives rendered from lived experiences, historical reflections, theoretical ruminations, and cultural and sociopolitical critiques, painting a panoramic picture of Chinese feminisms in the age of globalization. So, for the very first question, I would like to ask you how you come up with this book project.
2: Okay, Uh, this is Ping Zhu, and I can take the first question posed by Ling Shan. And first, thank you Ling Shan for having us here. It's a great pleasure to talk for the New Books Network. And the first question, how did us uh, come up with this book project? This was actually our first collaboration. My first collaboration with Fei, although we already shared similar research interests. My first book is about gender and subjectivities in modern China, and Fei's first book is about gender and marriage in contemporary China. However, before uh, 2016, we never collaborated. I wrote a book review, although for uh, Facebook Family Revolution in 2015. And after I finished my first book, I was conceiving a new book project on gender issues in contemporary China. Because Fei is obviously an expert in this area, and I liked her first book very much. I asked her if she was willing to collaborate with me for an ACLA seminar. And it was great. She said yes right away. And at that time, the landscape of Chinese feminisms was explosive and dazzling. And we just felt it was necessary to sort out the various strengths of feminisms in China since the 1995 World Conference on Women held in Beijing. And during the ACLA seminar in the Netherlands in the summer of 2017, Fei and I talked about putting together an edited volume. And it it became clear to us that the singular feminism must be replaced by the plural feminisms. We also felt that a hybrid volume may better articulate the complexity of China's contemporary feminist movements by representing the plural ideas and the practices. So when we discussed a lot how to put together this volume, and in the end, we decided to invite scholars, feminist activists, and writers from different regions, mainland China, Hong Kong, the United States, and Europe. And this hybrid model allows us to cover the multifarious and the dynamic contentions and representations of Chinese feminisms. In this single volume, we do not intend to present an authorial voice of any singular form of feminism in China. We want to set a stage for multiple voices, analysis, and interpretations of contemporary Chinese feminisms. In the volume, some chapters are primary texts, some are secondary texts, some are both primary and secondary texts. So we like to invite the readers to, to discover that actually the chapters form different dialogues with each other. That's an outstanding feature of this volume. Yeah, I really want
0: to talk about this, what we call like yuanfen in Chinese, but also fateful coincidence, maybe in English. That is the 2017 American Comparative Literature Association annual conference, ACLA. I just started my PhD life, and then that was the first major conference I attended outside the United States. And then I actually attended all of your sessions in the ACLA. So I feel, wow, there's such a fun there going on. And later on, of course, I met both Professor Zhu and Professor Xiao in all kinds of other occasions in different conferences. And then They were talking about all this very wonderful projects. And finally, now it came to this book and I'm so happy and excited about it. And also just now, Professor Zhu mentioned this plural form, feminisms, in the title of the book. And also there's another term, seemingly very politically loaded term, Chinese characteristics. So I'm wondering why you named the collection with this particular name, Feminisms with Chinese Characteristics.
2: Yeah, this is a great question about the theoretical framework of this book. When we first used The phrase, feminisms with Chinese characteristics, we were mainly thinking of embedding feminist ideas and practices in concrete Chinese history and reality. So that was our first impression of feminisms with Chinese characteristics. However, later, when we co-edited volume, we had a different labor division. Fei was tasked to uh, write the genealogy, and I was tasked to explain the meaning of this phrase. It was during that time that uh, I came up with the idea of using Chinese characteristics as a pun. So it is both what defines the various forms of Chinese feminisms and what the various forms of Chinese feminisms must challenge and dismantle. So there's a pun in this phrase. So I kept asking myself what the political potential of this phrase can be. And I find that in history, Chinese characteristics were always associated with some forms of binary structures, such as East and West, tradition, modern, socialism, capitalism. And all these structures always colluded with patriarchal powers. So plurality and intersectionality have always been the strengths of Chinese feminisms. The historical mission of Chinese feminisms, in my opinion, is that they should keep challenging the binary structures of power, and keep imagining an alternative future of equality and justice for all human beings. In this way, we use the phrase feminisms with Chinese characteristics in order to signify its universal significance. And we hope a strong message can be delivered in in this phrase.
0: Yeah, I was actually quite surprised when I heard in your book talk about this term Chinese characteristics, which has the relationship to like missionary, and also to how the West was understanding China at that particular moment. So it was fascinating to hear that part of this term, Chinese characteristics. And now that you are using feminisms with Chinese characteristics, you are adding another layer or even more layers to what feminisms mean to China. And then let's come to kind of the trajectory and also genealogy or history of feminisms with Chinese characteristics. So how do you describe this history? And how do different media, such as literature, film, popular culture, drama, public speech, interview, artworks, etc., that are all in this wonderful additive volume, contribute to this multifarious history of feminisms with Chinese characteristics? And what are the geographical distribution and also historical trajectory of the volume? Professor Xiao.
1: Thank you, Lin Shan. So- I guess I'll take your question or more like a, a set of questions. So I, I'll try to unpack some of your questions and keep my answer short. So as Ping has already put it. So basically the strengths of Chinese feminism is very much in its plurality. And, and actually from its very beginning in the Chinese feminism is already a product of this globalization system. But I suppose it's a bit different from, you know, what we would imagine what globalization is in today's world. So it's related more with this global capitalist expansion and also colonial conquest and, and also China's encounter with this colonial capitalist system. So the birth of Chinese feminisms can be traced back to the turn of the 20th century, when China was faced with a series of military defeats and foreign invasions and economic crises. So Chinese elites were seeking new ways to start China from sinking into a backwater colony in this imperialist and capitalist world system. So uh, some progressive male Chinese intellectuals and also political activists turned to a nationalist feminist agenda. So for many early male feminists, women's emancipation was part of a larger project of enlightenment and the national self-strengthening. So in other words, women's liberation was a concern for both men and women back then. So this unique tradition of feminisms with Chinese characteristics is a result of China's status as an oppressed class nation in the global colonial capitalist system, as Ling Chun has put it. So from its birth, Chinese women's liberation has been shaped by this interplay of hierarchies of gender, class, race, and the nationality. On domestic and also global scales, which in turn has given rise to this diverse and pluralistic Chinese feminisms. So, from its very beginning, Chinese feminism could not be understood as singular. So, under this umbrella term, or women's rights, anarchist, socialist, liberal, evolutionary, eugenic, and nationalist positions shaped various. Feminist articulations and also cultural imaginations for modern China. So the booming publication industry at the time, including the rise of women's journals and also publications of women's talks and writings provided an essential venue for the circulation and also articulation of feminist ideas and words. So since you also study modern Chinese literature, so I, I believe you are also very familiar with the following names, like Chou Jing and He Yinzhen, Ding Ling, Lu Ying, Xiao Hong, and so on. So this cohort of Chinese women writers also contributed to literary feminisms in the early 20th century by composing numerous narratives about women's everyday lives, gender dilemmas, struggles and uh, their revolutionary aspirations and practices. So this volume focuses more on the post-1995 development of Chinese feminisms, mainly in mainland China and Hong Kong. But of course, as I have already emphasized, and actually we have to understand Chinese feminisms, you know, always positioned in globalization and also this transnational feminist networks. So five chapters in the last section of this hybrid volume deal with the manifestations of Chinese feminisms in literary, cinematic, artistic, dramatic, performance art, and also other media in the past few decades. So
0: Professor Xiao just mentioned this very interesting idea of in Chinese, and which means women's rights in English. And It's very much related to the whole feminist activism that is also included in this book. And so my next question is actually related to the genealogy of feminist activism in China. So what is the genealogy there? And how do you describe the recent trend of feminist movements and also young activists based on social media as well?
1: Thank you, Lin Shan, for this very thoughtful question. And actually, uh, in modern China, you could see a very long history of feminist activism. So starting from the turn of the 20th century, from the first beheaded Chinese feminist martyr, Chiu Jing, to the first Chinese anarchist feminist, He Yingzhen, from early advocates for women's education and anti foot binding movement, and to women suffragists, and women soldiers, Chinese women activists, and the revolutionaries participated in and also initiated various social movements and also revolutionary causes to fight for women's emancipation and gender equity in the early 20th century. So that is why women's rights or Nichuan, you know, was a buzzword back then for many progressives, both male and female feminists during that time. So many radical, May force feminists later joined the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, during the Yan period and brought their feminist agenda to the core of the party. So women's liberation became a very significant part of the Chinese Socialist Revolution after the Yan period. And then in, in this book, in the second section, Wang Zhen's chapter examines three significant cohorts of Chinese feminists including socialist state feminists, NGO feminists around 1995, and young feminist activists in recent years. So as Wang Zheng has observed, the term feminism, either translated as nuquan shu or nuxing was deemed the, the two Western and the two bourgeois during the socialist period. So the slogans, Fang or Women's Liberation, and NANI equality between men and women were more favored by the party and were listed on the official political agenda so in 1949 the old china women's federation of fulian was established between 1949 and 78 fulian was the biggest and the sole legalized women's organization in china local branches Reach all the way to the neighborhood level in urban areas and to the village level in rural areas. So, this vast organizational reach enabled socialist state feminists to effectively carry out many transformative actions nationwide. As a result of the state feminism that was spearheaded as a formally institutionalized political campaign, women's social status, literacy rate, educational level, reproductive health, workforce, and political participation have all been enormously improved. However, in the post-socialist era, a discursive erasure of Chinese socialist feminist struggles simply ignored much of the work socialist state feminists have done. So in the place of the two slogans, of women's liberation or equality between men and women. So feminism has come back by this time translated as nixing because you know post-socialist or feminist discourses emphasized more on rediscovering and restoring the feminine quality or the feminine nature in women. So that is why they use the term nixing-zhuyi. So basically, the, the literal translation would be feminine nature or feminine quality And then the second cohort are NGO feminists around 1995. So this year, 1995, when the Fourth World Conference on Women was held in Beijing, marks a historical milestone in the development of the Chinese feminist movement and the globalization. This conference was attended by more than 17,000 participants. In addition, a parallel NGO forum was opened in Huairo, in the suburbs of Beijing. Following this 1995 World Conference on Women, some of the earliest women's NGOs got further development through the support of transnational funding and increased media visibility. So in many cases, NGOs and Fu Lian Women's Federation have developed a collaborative relationship to pool resources and carry out their advocacy campaigns and projects. This collaboration between feminist NGOs and the Women's Federation is a distinctive mode of contemporary Chinese feminisms. So while functioning largely outside of the government, these feminist NGOs are expected to follow the model of the Women's Federation to play supplementary rather than oppositional roles to governmental agencies. So that means the agendas should be aligned with the official ideology and also the national policy. So as the jeans chapter shows, this type of embedded activism that negotiates with the government to see the greatest extent of improvement within the system is common among contemporary Chinese social movements. And then the third cohort, a young feminist activists in recent years, in the new millennium, a young generation of feminists emerged on the stage of social activism. One of the most active but loosely structured coalition of young feminists all over the country, mainly networked through the internet and social media, is young feminist activists, also known as YFA, who make continuous effort in creative programs through protests performances, and campaigns online and offline. And they translate feminism into nuquan zhu because they want to emphasize the term rights in their translation and also uh, campaigning feminist acts. So born after China's economic reform and also one-child policy, members of YFA have been raised with concentrated familial investment, both financial and also emotional. So elevated living standards and expanded educational resources have equipped them with better economic and also cultural and social resources and capital. And moreover, the technological revolution, particularly the expanding coverage of the Internet and the mobile media, also opens up an alternate venue for access to transnational feminist networks and also global youth culture and innovative means of information dissemination and interactive communication. And then above ground, 40 Moments of Transformation, a photographic exhibition documenting recent demonstrations, mainly by this group, or YFA, was set up in 2017 to parallel the United Nations Women in the World Summit, which I was able to bring to the Spencer Art Museum at the University of Kansas in 2018. So this is a a very brief genealogy of feminist activism and also their preferred translations of the term feminism into various different forms, depending on the focus of their different feminist agendas.
0: It's really great to hear all these feminist movements in China. And I feel I really want to become part of them. And maybe I'm already part of them. But I think what's most striking for me and what I didn't pay attention to It's really the socialist period and all those feminists during that period. And I think I first noticed this particular period and how feminists were fighting for their own rights It's really because of Professor Wang Zhen's talks and articles. And now that you mentioned all this period again, I think it's also a very important feature of this volume. That is really the discussion of gender and class. And I feel I learned so much from this volume about this particular discussion. So what is the relationship between gender and class? What is the importance of class in thinking about gender? And how shall we inherit the legacy of feminisms with Chinese characteristics in a socialist period, Professor Zhu?
2: Okay. Thank you for the question. This is an important question. The recent intersectional theory tells people that gender and class and also other categories such as race, nation, and ethnicity, are interlinked and they produce each other. So it is not enough to attack just one of them. you have to attack all of them in order to reverse the social injustice. However, the modern Chinese feminists, male and female alike, they had long recognized the intersectional relationship between gender and class in the beginning of the twentieth century, Fei already mentioned the anarchist feminist He Yingzhen. She conceptualized gender not simply as a form of social identity determined by sexual distinction, but as a mechanism to create forms of power and domination in a structurally unequal society. He Yingzhen used the notion of shenji, which can be translated into livelihood in English, to expose the institution of private property that subjugated women in history and she called for the elimination of all capitalists and during the new culture movement which was between 1915 to the early 1920s the chinese intellectuals challenged the western feminism for its blind spot of collapse. For example, one leading new culture intellectual, Bai Jitao, and he was also one of the earliest Chinese Marxists, he argued in his 1920 essay entitled The Intersection Between Laborers' Movement and the Women's Movement that Chinese women could not obtain liberation either through women's suffrage movement or obtaining financial independence because as I quote Dai Jitao, they would barely escape the prison of the family before they wear the chains of wage labor, end of quote. Dai Jitao concluded that only by intersecting the women question with the labor question could a transformative solution be found. All these Chinese interlocutors proposed the intersection of gender and the class long before it became a popular theory after Kimberly Crenshaw's 1989 essay, demarginalizing the intersection of race and the sex became popular. And then after that intersectional theory became a popular theory in the academia. But the Chinese were talking about it long time ago. And the intersection between gender and class continued to dominate the socialist gender ideology. However, in the ultra leftist ideology, socialist ideology, women's liberation was conceived purely as a liberation of the oppressed class. So this is not intersecting gender with class. This is basically absorbing gender into the category of class. And the marginalization or even exclusion of gender issues created other problems in that sense. So there was a strong backlash against the socialist gender ideology. After the Cultural Revolution, in the post-socialist period, that was why, as they mentioned, there was this the rise of the so-called women's specific consciousness, in the 1980s. As for how to inherit the legacy of socialist feminism, the first step, I think, is to recognize it. And the book we just co-edited, I think it's our effort to try to let more people recognize socialist feminism. The socialist gender ideology was under attack in, in the post-socialist period. However, since 2010, we have seen many scholars contributing to the recognition of this legacy of socialist feminism. The list of the names include Song Shaopeng, Dong Liming, Wang Zhen, Zhong Xueping, Wang Ling and Bai Di. Several of them are actually contributors in this volume. In the introduction of the volume, we devoted a whole section to socialist feminism because we believe this form of feminism is the most important for preserving critiques of systematic problems, such as the inequities perpetuated by the neoliberal world order formed in the post-Cold War era, and the specters of patriarchy revived by the victory of capital in various social sectors. Our volume also contains three chapters about the legacy of socialist feminism, by Zhong Xueping, Fei, and myself. We hope that this volume can be read and taught widely so that more people can realize the systematic cause of gender issues.
0: Now that we have talked about like, the general picture of this whole additive volume, I really want to come to some specific. Chapters and of course we have the two editors here and also the two contributors here. Professor Zhu and Professor Xiao both write chapters in this um, volume. So let's come to Professor Zhu's chapter first. So Professor Zhu actually write in the third part, Chinese Feminisms in Women's Literature, Art, and Film, and she wrote an article entitled "Wang Ai's New Shanghai: Gender and Labor in Fuping. So I'm wondering. What's the gendered labor you are proposing in this particular chapter? What does the gendered labor play out in Wang Anyi's Fuping? How do you carry out a dialogue with other chapters?
2: Thank you for the question, Lingshan. So this is one of the three chapters on socialist feminism I just talked about. Gendered labor refers to the division of labor for women. And gendered labor can be further divided into two types. One is biologically determined, such as childbirth and breastfeeding. But these might change, right, (laughs) depending on the development of technology. Maybe one day women do not have to give birth to babies. The other is socially determined, such as domestic work and the care work. And the content of the the socially determined gender work changes in history all the time. And both were reproductive labor, not productive labor in canonical Marxism. According to Marxism, productive labor has to be the labor that produces capital. So women's labor, gendered labor, in this sense, was not regarded as productive labor. Based on this division, Chinese women who did not take on social work, they were often regarded as non-productive or profit-sharers, fen-li, ha? Fen-li, profit-sharer, and were thus marginalized in cultural representations and the social hierarchy. The popular socialist proposition was that only productive social labor can liberate women. <laughs> That's why we see a lot in a lot of social, socialist films. Women were encouraged to leave their household to work in the social field. In this co-edited volume, I wrote about Wang Anyi's novel *Fuping*. In this novel, Wang Anyi basically pushed the proposition, the socialist proposition that only productive social labor can liberate women. Right. So Wang Anyi pushed this proposition by showing that unproductive labor can liberate women too. The protagonists in the story were migrant laborers doing service work, such as housekeeping, cooking, trash picking, and repairing things in mid-1960s Shanghai. That was shortly before the Cultural Revolution. And those women all lived a dignified and content life working as laborers as such. Their gendered labor is aestheticized and moralized by Wang Ayi in the novel, and by portraying this group of female laborers, Wang Ai unlinks Shanghai with the consumer culture from its colonial past, and reclaims Shanghai as a different feminine city, a city of a non-capitalist, non-masculinist space for the working people, especially for the uh, working women. So this was her, uh, I think, was her important contribution to socialist feminism. And this is a story of socialist feminism. It's a representative story of socialist feminism. In, in order to help our readers to further understand the story, I included the interview with a line. It's called, Am I a Feminist? In the same volume. So people actually can read my essay and that interview together because I heavily actually excited that interview in my essay. Why he has drawn from the socialist history of China to create a flexible, supportive, and aesthetic feminine utopian, one that is both an amendment to the sex-blind, ultra-leftist socialist ideology. And an alternative to the capitalist world, Wang focus on the subaltern women, combines class and gender as lived realities and structuring processes. And her emphasis on the affective dimension of labor allows her to avoid the reductionist pitfall which reduces culture and the politics to mere reflections of economy. So this is her way, Wang Anyi's way, of reconciling feminism and the Marxism in order to imagine a different space for women and a different future for the world. And this can be understood as a broadly defined feminism, which we can call new Dai Jinghua actually proposed to use nü womenism, right, as a broad term to include all kinds of activities or imaginations for alternative future. And I think that was precisely what Wang Yi was doing in her novel.
0: Yeah, I really like this chapter and also what you just mentioned, Wang's interview, because for me, I think, again, this is my blank spot that I never pay attention to Wang's writing of this particular group of women. Of course, my favorite is still Song of Everlasting Sorrow, Chang Heng Ge. But this is such a fascinating story as well, and really generates my interest to read this novel as well. So now let's come to Professor Xiao. So Professor Xiao also contributed to the third part, and she wrote the chapter called I Am Fan Su baomu writing and grassroots feminism against the post-socialist patriarchy. And in this particular chapter, one term that really stands out is baomu and also the baomu writing. So how do you define baomu, which means domestic worker in English, and baomu writing? How do they inherit socialist woman cadres legacy, as well as reformulate the feminist literary tradition and grassroots feminism?
1: So how do you carry out your dialogue with other chapters as well? I'm also very happy that actually my question came after things, because first of all, I want to say Wang Yi probably is the most prolific contemporary Chinese woman writer who has published the most works actually on the social group of Baomu. So very relevant to what I'm going to talk about here. And second, and Ping just uh, explained the meaning of gendered labor that also applies very well to our understanding of Baumu's work. So as you said, normally Baumu would be roughly translated as nanny or uh, domestic worker who are uh, usually female and are from rural areas in the context of uh, contemporary China. So the contemporary Chinese society or the post-socialist China has seen a rise of urban middle class that resorts to buying commodified private home ownership and also Baomu's commodified labor to fulfill the bourgeois domestic bliss. So as a result, a massive number of female migrant workers leave their families behind in the countryside to enter the urban middle-class homes as domestic workers. However, despite their indispensable everyday labor and also physical and emotional closeness to their uh, middle-class employers, domestic workers actually are often looked down upon for their poor education and the rural roots and lower social status and also their devalued gendered labor normally perceived as what women naturally do for thousands of years. So against such a broader backdrop of gender and class hierarchies, Fanny Su's autobiographical writing is particularly meaningful and significant. So Fan Su herself is a baomu, or migrant worker, domestic worker, who migrated from uh, Hubei province in central China to work as a living nanny in Beijing. And she's also a member of the Pichuan Literature Group on the suburbs of Beijing. In 2017, she published an essay called I Am Fan Su," so my title of of the essay, on social media so which immediately went viral online and then later got reported even by state media, such as Xinhua News and People's Daily and also international media. So this essay, I am finding Su chronicles her life and the work and the providing an alternative mu narrative in a female migrant worker's own words and voice and also giving voice to those silenced, and female migrant workers who are scattered at the peripheries of the patriarchal power structure. I also just uh, uh, guest edited a special section on uh, writings by domestic workers and also uh, female migrant workers for Chinese literature today, and that uh, just uh, came out a couple of months ago. And you asked us a very important, wonderful question about this legacy with socialist feminism and particularly fine Su's connection with socialist uh, women cadre, a very important part of the socialist feminist legacy. You know, when we, in today's China, we do see this decreasing level of women's participation in public affairs and also political leadership. Okay, so... Uh, Talking about the most admirable person in the world, so finally, Shu names her mother with no hesitation, and I quote her here. My mother, Zhang Xianzhi, was born in 1936. At the age of 14, she was democratically elected the director of the local committee, of the Women's Federation Fulian, so the word I just mentioned when I talked about the genealogy of uh, Chinese feminist activism, because she had a way with words and excelled at helping others solve conflicts, unquote. So uh, Zhang's Politically charged, strong woman image is reminiscent of a series of rural women cadre characters created during the socialist period, such as Li Shuangshuang in the film Li Shuangshuang, and Ping just gave a talk about it, and also Jinghua in the movie Five Golden Flowers, and also Du Wanxiang in Dingling's 1978 story Du Wanxiang. So finally, Su herself actually carries on the socialist woman cadre's legacy of engaging with public affairs and community building with her literary writing, which exposes gender and class-based social injustice and inequalities. So, in this sense, Fan's literary production should be viewed as a social act of constructing a grassroots life world, not recognized by the history of capital and the historically situated practice of retrieving and also reenacting the forgotten socialist feminist legacy. And let me talk about how my chapter engages in a dialogue with other chapters in this volume. So Fan's account of working as a baomu or domestic worker to care for the young child of uh, Arnai, uh, like a second concubine, that would be the literal translation, more like a mistress, uh, testifies to uh, Dai Jinghua's remarks on the specter of polygamy as a result of the alliance of male power and the transnational capital in contemporary China in chapter four of this volume. And in addition, my discussion of a working class for almost gendered labor Also carries a conversation with Pin's chapter and also uh, Xue Ping Zhong's chapter on the class characteristics of Chinese feminisms, and supporting literature.
0: Again, it's so fascinating to hear both of your own chapters and also how you carry out the dialogues with other chapters as well. Now we come to some very specific issues in this volume. I actually collected all these questions through the book talk as well, but also they are my own question in another sense. So the very first one is, how do you describe the relationship between feminisms with Chinese characteristics with the Western feminism. So Professor Zhu.
2: This is an interesting question. Western feminism or feminisms with Chinese characteristics, they are two different traditions of feminisms representing two different histories, I I think. And uh, Fei has just showed us the complex genealogy of Chinese feminisms or feminisms with Chinese characteristics. And in the past 120 years or so, China had experienced a variety of social modes, and such a compressed and rich history led to the plural feminisms with Chinese characteristics. Western feminism, on the other hand, served as a point of reference throughout the Chinese history, but it is noteworthy that Western feminism discussed in the Chinese texts is always simplified and reductive. It is not fair. We we already argued and convinced our readers that Chinese feminism should be plural. And I want to say here that Western feminisms should be plural as well. Most of the time, however, in the Chinese discussions, Western feminism is equated to bourgeois feminism. So we're just talking about one specific fraction of Western feminism most of the time in reality, it should be plural. And our volume has shown that Chinese feminists have learned many things directly or indirectly from their Western counterparts. In history, the Chinese and Western feminists collaborated and fought the patriarchal structures together. Therefore, I'd like to describe the relationship between Chinese feminisms and Western feminisms with the metaphor of sisterhood. They're like two sisters who are different, but share similar interests, challenges, problems, and dreams, and who can just help each other and learn from each other. So sisterhood would be the short answer.
0: Yeah, I really love this answer and really reminds me of again, my own blind spot before, like when I was learning gender studies and feminism, I actually started with all those very classical white feminism, basically. But then later on, I learned a lot about the black feminism, like Audre Lorde, bell hooks. And then I find a totally different world. So I think this is a very important thing to keep in mind that Western feminism should not be singular either. It should be plural. So, yes, sisterhood should be the word here. Now, another question is, what is the role of sexuality in feminisms with Chinese characteristics in navigating between the economic neoliberalism and ideological neoconservatism? And how do you see the relationship between women's issues and LGBTQIA plus community? Professor Xiao.
1: Thank you, Lin Shen, for asking this very important question, and it's too bad during our book talks we didn't really have time to address this question, so I'm truly glad you have brought this up so that I can uh, use several chapters in, in this volume to you know, answer your question with very specific uh, examples and case studies. So as I said, you know, actually, you know, we have several chapters in this volume that discuss, you know, the articulations and also representations of sex and sexuality as feminist strategies and also protests against the post-socialist patriarchy shaped by the convergence of economic neoliberalism and also ideological neoconservatism. So in Chapter 7, Keqian Ting examines creative linguistic strategies in the Chinese adaptation and also localization of Eve Ensler's the Vagina Monologues, also known as TVM, so probably one of the most famous uh, feminist plays in, in the West. So between 2003 and 2014, at least 42 Chinese organizations launched the performances related to TVM in mainland China. but one of their producers actually came from Taiwan so actually you do see this network you know not only in mainland China and Hong Kong but also in Taiwan. So China's gender organizations and also TVM crew members gradually developed a, a set of working methods based on local needs. They organized the storytelling workshops for members to tell their own stories the members' identities were always varied and diverse, including lesbians, transgender, bisexual, and disabled people. Their stories were heterogeneous, making the Chinese TVM more diverse and pluralistic rather than monologic, tackling multiple hierarchies along the divisions of gender, class, and sexuality. And then in chapter 11, Shu Cui offers a psychoanalytical reading of Zhang Jie's recent massive sculpture installation over 1.5 tons. And, and actually thanks to uh, Professor Cui, so we got the artist Jiang Jie's permission to use her artwork as our cover design. So this installation art is a phallic shaped dying wrapped with colored lace and suspended horizontally from the ceiling by iron hooks. So in the hands of the feminist female sculpture, the phallic imagery no longer signifies the monumentality of male desire or symbolizes the formidable power of the father's law. So if you are familiar with psychoanalytical theories, so father's law basically dominates the universe. But rather, uh, this artwork points to this important, vulnerable, and fragmented male body part. While in display, this sculpture with its ambiguous subject and monstrous form does not blend into Shanghai's affluent urban setting. Rather, it is a graphic, feminist reflection of the grave consequences of China's socio-economic madness where hypercharged urbanization and also economic expansion have violated the environment and also distorted traditional values. And then in the last chapter, chapter 12, Gina Machati's chapter focuses on the importance of a cosmopolitan vision to the ways in which Hong Kong women filmmakers have depicted feminist movements, women's issues, and sexual politics on screen. So it's a, like a screen feminism with Hong Kong characteristics. So Hong Kong films by, for, and about women address a series of feminist issues at the intersection of gender, class, and race, including Hollywood's orientalist representations of the city Hong Kong and its people, particularly women, and women's cross border migration and sex workers' labor rights sexual harassment and the violence, the women's social movement and the political activism, as well as LGBTQ issues. So as Adeline Lim has put it, Hong Kong as a transnational space allows for multicultural, multilingual and multi-ethnic feminist activists to make border crossing movements and to build transnational feminist connections to overcome hierarchies of class, gender, ethnicity, and nationality. So again, we can use Pink's beautiful metaphor, sisterhood here. Or or if we can also borrow Tony Barlow's phrase, so it's more like political sisterhood. So women in different places and with different diverse identities get connected together and building up this transnational feminist network all these feminist activities, creations, representations, and performances through all these, a wide range of social groups and also gender organizations, including LGBTQ communities, are connected together to form this collaborative coalition to challenge the hegemony, of heterosexual patriarchy, and also to push back this alliance of economic neoliberalism, and also ideological neoconservatism.
0: Yeah, I think, again, from your answers, I feel there are so many things that we can explore in this particular additive volume, and it's so great to hear both of you talking about the additive volume again after several book talks already in this month. Now, let's switch gears a little bit and ask your next project. So what's each of your next book project? And are you going to cooperate again for another additive volume of projects, Professor Zhu?
2: Okay, I'll start first. I'm currently working on a book manuscript titled The Cult of Labor in Modern China. This book discusses how labor was turned into an appealing, enchanted notion loaded with moral, affective, sensual, and emancipatory meanings in modern China. And one book chapter titled Dignified and in Love will focus on the relationship of gender and labor mobilization during the socialist period. As for future collaboration, Fei and I, actually, we keep collaborating with each other after we co-edited Feminisms with Chinese Characteristics. In 2021, last year, we just finished a co-edited special section on Chinese migrant workers literature in World Literature Today. And Fei has mentioned that she just completed a guest edited special section on Chinese women migrant workers literature for Chinese Literature Today, the journal I'm editing. And we are currently collaborating on another project. Fei is the contributor of the special section, it's called re Labor, that I am co-editing with Wang Zhuoyi, Yi from Hamilton College. And this special section will be published in Chinese literature and thought today in 2022, this year. So I'm sure we will, Fei and I will keep collaborating uh, in the near future, right?
0: Yeah, this is so great. It's another manifestation of
1: sisterhood again. <laughs> yes, so yes. How about Professor Shell? Yes, academic sisterhood. I, I yeah. love it. Yeah. And the thing is that the best collaborator and the co-editor and the co-presenter, co-interviewee that I could wish for. So thank you for asking about my next project, which is still in the air. So. But at this moment, uh, my next book project is tentatively titled The Hand Cackles in the Morning, Voices of Women Leaders in Modern Chinese Literature and Cinema. So associated with the sagely uh, enunciative power of language, sound making has been an important acoustic index of one's possession of political authority in Chinese culture. So if you can make sound that normally means you do have a say in public affairs and also in uh, political governance. And then my book aims to investigate this evolution of the cultural representations of female leaders at different historic junctures and with a focus on analyzing the shifting soundscape that amplifies sometimes or silences sometimes uh, women's voices at the peripheries of the patriarchal power structure and also uh, the political establishment. So as Ping mentioned, I'm currently completing an essay on grassroots women leaders' voices and sound-making practices as gendered immaterial labor for the special section Xi and Zhuoyi are co-editing. Uh, And this essay will also be revised and expanded and developed into a chapter in my my next book project.
0: I'm so much looking forward to both of your projects because, again, my own project has so much to do with gender. And of course, what Professor Zhu just mentioned are the things that I'm also very interested in in my own research project. And what Professor Xiao was mentioning about this sound making it's also something that I'm exploring through the popular culture in contemporary China, like the audio drama. That's something that I'm super interested in. So again, I, I really look forward to both of your projects. And thank you so much again for coming to New Books Network. I really, really enjoy this conversation. I'm so excited right now. So thank you so much. Thank
1: you, Linsan, for being yeah. a great host. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Fei. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you, Ping. Yeah, so yeah, let's. Uh, keep in touch and probably Mm. also keep collaborating and i'm sure you know our intellectual overlap will also lead our paths crossing again in the near future